Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 35 of the Dayson Digest podcast. I'm Travis Jones, a liaison clinical pharmacist with Dayson. In today's episode, I have Wes Johnson and Ginny Thomas, two PGY2 infectious disease residents from the University of Kentucky, here with us to discuss an article providing commentary on the optimal timing of blood culture collection. The links to the articles discussed in this episode will be included in the episode notes. And for reference, we're recording this episode on Thursday, April 7th, 2022. So I wanna turn it over to Jenny. So Jenny, give us a little bit of background information about this study. Yeah, thanks for that introduction, Travis. And thanks so much for having Wes and I here today. So yeah, we wanted to provide just a little bit of background today before we really go ahead and dive into the article. So we wanna talk just a little bit about blood culture utilization and the timing of blood cultures in general. And coincidentally, the same author group who published the article that we're gonna be discussing today also published this really well done review of blood culture utilization in the hospital setting. And this was just published in the Journal of Clinical Microbiology in March of 2022. So also a very recent publication. And in this mini review, they discuss blood culture collection practices and the need to optimize hospital blood culture use in general. And they point out that at least 90% of blood cultures that are collected in routine clinical practice actually don't grow any organisms, which really tells us as clinicians that a portion of these are likely being drawn inappropriately. And we know that blood culture optimization is really important to make sure that we detect cases of true bacteremia while also reducing the harms that can be associated with drawing unnecessary blood cultures. So we can have things like treatment of false positive blood culture results. And primarily this is something that occurs in the setting of the detection of possible contaminants that we then end up over-treating. Um, so organisms like coagulase negative staphylococcus, carinobacterium, bacillus, micrococcus, cutibacterium acnes, those sorts of organisms. Additionally, we can actually see delays in hospital discharge from the treatment of these false positive results. And we can ultimately see increased healthcare costs. And these costs can actually be pretty substantial. So there was a nice study that was published by Casey Dempsey and colleagues in the American Journal of Infection and Control back in 2019. And they found that blood culture contamination increased pharmacy costs by anywhere from $200 to $12,000 per patient and then increased laboratory charges by around $2,500 to $11,000 per patient. So very significant cost expenditures here. So the authors in this mini review provide some commentary on optimizing some of the pre-analytical factors that are associated with blood culture collection. So first off, it's really important to ensure that we have an appropriate indication for drawing blood cultures prior to actually performing them. And while unfortunately there isn't a lot of specific guidance from national organizations on exact indications for drawing blood cultures, there are actually two really good DASON newsletters on this topic that were published in June and September of 2018 that discuss indications for blood cultures and also how to identify potential contaminated blood cultures. So if you guys are interested in these materials, please go ahead and ask your liaison about it and they'll be happy to provide these for you. But I wanna mention that many scenarios in which inappropriate blood cultures are drawn can really be lumped into one of two buckets. So the first bucket being patients who have the presence of some sort of alternative non-infectious process that's responsible for their clinical symptoms where we really don't need to be drawing blood cultures because we already know what else is going on with the patient. And our other bucket 
is really the case of getting inappropriate repeat blood cultures. So for example, patients who already have negative blood cultures that have been documented without any additional signs of infection, but we're still getting repeat blood cultures. And I don't know, I wanted to ask you, Wes, do you feel like you've seen a lot of inappropriate blood cultures that have been drawn in practice? Is this pretty consistent with what you've seen? This is consistent with what I've seen. Really, I can think of several examples, a few that you've really mentioned before of, we have other etiologies of potentially a fever, but we do end up drawing blood cultures and those are ultimately negative. Or potentially if we have multiple negative blood cultures, and then we redraw just one more time to ensure that those are negative once again, probably could do without those instances. Yeah, I would agree. I feel like that's similar to what I've seen. So I really feel like part of our job is just making sure that when we are drawing these blood cultures, they're actually appropriate and they have high diagnostic utility for us as clinicians. And then in terms of the optimal number of blood culture sets to draw, the authors highlight that we really want at least two sets of blood cultures. Um, and just a reminder that a set of blood cultures consists of one aerobic and one anaerobic bottle, and each bottle should have 10 milliliters of blood each. So we want at least two sets of blood cultures for optimal bacteremia detection. And this is a reminder that drawing just one single set of blood cultures, again, meaning one aerobic and one anaerobic bottle from one single venipuncture site is really inadequate for the detection of bacteria or yeast in the blood. And I know that Wes and I have definitely both seen single sets of blood cultures drawn occasionally in clinical practice. So this really is not appropriate. We need to make sure that when it is appropriate to draw blood cultures, we're getting at least two sets. And then when we talk about optimal blood culture timing, I do think clinicians are very well educated on prompt blood culture collection prior to any antimicrobial administration, especially in the setting of something like septic shock. So that really remains the standard of care, making sure that we draw our blood cultures prior to starting any antimicrobials. And then repeat blood cultures should be obtained when we're trying to assess something like persistent bacteremia. So for example, for a patient with Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia, this is a case where it would be appropriate for us to be getting those repeat blood cultures. And in the United States, historically we have favored multiple venipunctures when obtaining blood cultures, just to try to better discriminate between true bacteremia versus possible blood culture contamination. However, I will say that a single venipuncture approach is potentially reasonable if you have a unit that has very low blood culture contamination rates. And the authors highlight this within this mini review. And Wes, I wanted to ask you, do you feel like you've ever seen this single venipuncture approach used in clinical practice? Honestly, I feel like far and away the majority is multiple venipuncture. Um, however, from time to time, we can see the single approach. Maybe a patient is a difficult stick would be an example of times that this can happen. Yeah, I feel like that's pretty consistent with what I've seen. Just patients where, for whatever re reason, we're really not able to get blood cultures from multiple access points, and we end up having to take them from a single venipuncture. But I would agree. I feel like the standard of care, at least where we practice, is usually utilizing multiple sites for patients. So overall, in this mini review, the investigators provide a couple considerations for implementing a blood culture improvement program, and they talk about the process of blood culture collection and also the process for blood culture indications. 
So they suggest performing just a baseline blood culture practice assessment at an institution to really figure out how your institution is practicing. And then moving forward with educating the bedside staff on appropriate blood culture indications, usually through the use of some sort of clinical document that can be um, generated by your institution. Additionally, they recommend assessing blood culture quality indicators. So this consists of things like blood culture positivity rate, single sets of blood cultures that are drawn, central line blood cultures, and blood culture contamination rates. So trying to collect all of this information. And lastly, when implementing an initiative like this, they recommend engaging multiple stakeholders within a blood culture improvement program. So things like the microbiology lab, nursing, pharmacy, vascular access teams, really all of these stakeholders who would be involved in this process. So overall, I really feel like blood culture optimization as a form of diagnostic stewardship is something that we often overlook as clinicians. At least this is something that I feel guilty of myself. And I feel like this is the topic that we should likely be focusing a little bit more of our attention on. So be sure that you all check out that mini review article if you haven't already, because there are a lot of additional details and content that are really helpful at the institutional level. And as Travis mentioned, we'll be sure to include a link to this article within the notes section of this podcast episode. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and pivot to our main topic for today's discussion, because one component of optimizing hospital blood culture use is ensuring that we have an optimal interval between our successive blood culture sets. And we already talked about the necessity of drawing at least two blood culture sets in clinical practice. However, the data on the optimal time to wait between drawing these two sets of blood cultures is really limited. So historically, there have been concerns that collecting sets of blood cultures simultaneously or over a very short period of time could potentially miss things like intermittent bacteremia or very low inoculum bacteremia. So historically, we've favored having some sort of interval between that first and second set of blood cultures that's collected. However, the American Society for Microbiology, as well as the Clinical and Laboratory Standards Institute, both recommend the collection of simultaneous sets of blood cultures. Additionally, we have recommendations from the Infectious Diseases Society of America, and they recommend sequential blood cultures over a series of minutes in urgent situations. So for example, patients with septic shock. However, they recommend an interval of several hours for non-urgent situations. So you can see we have sort of conflicting opinions within this space. So while unfortunately we don't have a lot of great national guidance on drawing simultaneous cultures versus having some sort of interval between our different blood culture sets, this brings us into today's article that we wanted to talk about. So I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Wes to discuss this article. Thanks, Jenny. So let's go ahead and dive into this article titled To Wait or Not to Wait, Optimal Time Interval Between the First and Second Blood Culture Sets to Maximize Blood Culture Yield. This study was published in March of 2022 in Antimicrobial Stewardship and Healthcare Epidemiology and really aimed to evaluate the impact of timing on blood culture yield. The authors of this study were retrospectively evaluating the first two sets of blood cultures obtained within the first 24 hours from patients that are 18 or older. And these were patients that were presenting to the emergency department at the John Hopkins Hospital between January 28, 2017 and October 31, 2019. Patients with monomicrobial and polymicrobial cultures were included within this study. For exclusion, 
Patients were excluded if there were additional blood cultures obtained beyond the first two sets to avoid bias associated with increased likelihood of bacteremia detection with additional sets. Additionally, patients were excluded if they only had a single set drawn within the first 24 hours. And finally, patients were excluded if the blood culture was positive for contaminants. In this study, blood culture contamination was defined as growth of a single blood culture set of any of the following organisms. Bacillus species, coagulase negative staphylococcus, carinibacterium, micrococcus, cutibacterium, and Viridans group streptococci. And Jenny, do you feel as if you encounter contaminants very often, or what might you see that makes you think something is a contaminant? Yeah, I would say that we do encounter these organisms that are possible contaminants relatively frequently in clinical practice. I do feel like, luckily for us, a lot of our new rapid diagnostic panels are able to detect these organisms, so we're pretty quickly able to discern whether we have an organism that represents possible contamination versus true infection. So I think that's really helpful for us. And personally for me, in terms of thinking about things that would make me suspicious of a possible contaminant, I think you really have to first think about the identified pathogen, which you already highlighted what this author group was looking at as potential contamination. So of course, if we see something like a coagulase negative staphylococcus, I'm gonna be concerned for possible contamination. Um, also looking at the number of positive blood cultures. So for example, if we are appropriately drawing two sets of blood cultures for a patient, and we have an organism that's a possible contaminant just in one out of four of those bottles, I'm going to be a lot more suspicious for contamination than I would be if it's present in four out of four bottles. And then I think the other main thing to think about is whether blood cultures were collected from one site versus multiple sites, since I'm also much more likely to believe that we have true infection if the organism is present in blood culture bottles drawn from separate sites versus blood cultures that were present just from one single vein of puncture. So I think those are kind of the general considerations that I think about. Yeah, and those are really great thoughts. I, I definitely agree really with taking into consideration multiple sites. Now for this study, blood cultures were sent to the microbiology clinical laboratory at Johns Hopkins and were processed using the BD Bactech FX blood culture system for organism detection. And blood cultures were ultimately incubated for five days, and identification of microorganisms was performed using matrix-assisted laser desorption, ionization time-of-flight mass spectrometry, or better known as MALDI-TOF MS. Additionally, identification could be performed using the Vergine BCID-GP panel. And then collection times for blood cultures was extracted from the electronic health record and the recommended volume of blood per bottle was 10 milliliters for adults. And before getting into the results, it's also important to discuss the definitions that are laid out for us by the authors. A blood culture pair refers to the first two sets of blood cultures drawn from a patient, and a set is defined as one aerobic bottle and one anaerobic bottle. Blood culture positivity was defined as the proportion of blood culture pairs with growth of a non-contaminant organism in one or both blood culture sets. And finally, blood culture timing was assessed in EPIC software and separated by zero to nine minutes or 10 minutes or greater. It should be noted that the zero to nine minute group was defined as short interval and the 10 minutes or greater group was defined as long interval. 
Additionally, the 10 minute or greater group was further stratified into a 10 to 29 minute group or a greater than or equal to 30 minute group. And during the time period from January 2017 to October 2019, the authors collected 6,938 blood cultures. And of these, 1,082 were excluded due to too many cultures being drawn, too few of cultures being drawn, or due to blood culture contaminants. And this really left us with 5,856 blood cultures. And this ultimately translated to 2,928 pairs. 27% of these pairs were drawn in the zero to nine minute group with a median of three minutes. 59% were drawn in the 10 to 29 minute group with a median of 16 minutes and 14% were drawn with 30 minutes or greater between the sets with a median of 43 minutes. Of note, the authors found that the proportion of blood cultures being drawn in the short interval classification was increasing throughout the study period. It started with 23.5% in 2017 and then increased to 36% in 2018 and finally to 40% in 2019. In this study, the overall blood culture positivity rate was 15% or 439 out of 2,928 pairs. And if you remember back to Jenny's background information, this is higher than the 10% positivity rate outlined in other studies. Of the 439 positive culture pairs, the majority were monomicrobial at approximately 87%, and 13% were found to be polymicrobial. The patients were also stratified by the positivity rates according to their collection time groups and demonstrated similar rates of positivity within these cohorts. 13% of those in the zero to nine minute group were found to have positive blood cultures. 15% of blood cultures in the 10 to 29 minute group were found to be positive. And then 17% of those in the 30 minute or greater group had a positive blood culture. The authors also performed a subgroup analysis and excluded 274 blood culture pairs that received antibiotics before the first or second blood culture set. This subgroup analysis is important to assess because the blood cultures that give us the most accurate information will be blood cultures that are drawn prior to antibiotics. And Jenny, how often do you think you see blood cultures drawn after antibiotics? I would say that luckily in clinical practice, I feel like I haven't seen a whole lot of this. I think one thing that the Surviving Sepsis campaign has done really well is educate clinicians on the importance of getting those blood cultures prior to starting antibiotics. So for the most part, I would say this isn't usually a problem for us. Of course, we still have some of those rare scenarios where for whatever reason, blood cultures aren't obtained prior to us starting antibiotics which can make it really difficult for us as clinicians. But luckily when it comes to things like bacteremia and sepsis, I do feel like clinicians do a really good job of getting those blood cultures prior to starting therapy. Yeah, those are really some great considerations to think about. And so going back to really this subgroup that they, they teased out, after exclusion of those antibiotics being given before, rates still remain similar amongst the groups at 14%, 16%, and 15%, for the zero to nine, 10 to 29, and 30 minute or greater groups respectively. This study also assessed if there was a difference as it related to different pathogens between the time groups. 
The authors did not detect a difference in blood culture positivity among short or longer interval blood cultures that grew gram-positive organisms, gram-negative organisms, or anaerobes. Now, interestingly, there was a non-significant trend towards an increased yield for anaerobes among blood culture sets that were drawn 30 minutes or more apart. This non-significant trend was also true for polymicrobial bacteremias and for yeast. However, this trend could potentially be explained by the low number of blood cultures in each of these situations. With anaerobes being identified in 24 positive blood culture pairs, seven positive cultures with yeast, and then 57 blood cultures that were polymicrobial. Now, there were several limitations that are certainly worth pointing out. The ability to retrospectively assess the timing of blood culture sets being drawn is really predicated on the individual that scanned the specimen into the electronic health record. Another limitation to this study is the uncertainty of how much blood is being used for each individual bottle, as the blood volume really might affect the positivity rate. And then finally, an, a limitation that could be present in this study is the underrepresentation of difficult to grow organisms. And further studies may need to be conducted to better understand if there's an effect seen in different time intervals between blood culture sets. Ultimately, this study demonstrated no difference for the yield of common bacterial pathogens when two blood culture sets were collected within a short interval of zero to nine minutes or a longer interval of 10 minutes or greater. While there was not a statistically significant difference in positivity rates between the short interval and longer interval between blood cultures, there was a 28% increase in blood culture positivity when comparing the zero to nine minute group to the 30 minute or greater group with 13.3% in the short interval and 17% positivity in the longer interval. But again, this was not statistically significant. The results prove that the timing of the second blood culture will not impact the positivity rates and could be important findings for community hospitals. With these results in mind, hospitals do not have to coordinate the timing of their blood cultures and nursing staff or phlebotomists can obtain simultaneous blood cultures. The practice of obtaining simultaneous blood cultures will allow for a smoother workflow and prevent the confusion of waiting a designated amount of time between blood culture sets. This practice could be especially helpful to community hospitals that have a single designated worker that is responsible for gathering blood draws and cultures on multiple units within the hospital. Additionally, the results of this study posed some interesting questions based upon the findings. The results demonstrated a non-significant trend towards increased yields of anaerobic organisms, yeast, and polymicrobial organisms with longer intervals between blood culture sets. These results really could lay the groundwork for informing a larger prospective trial that aims to elucidate whether there's truly benefit from waiting between blood culture sets. That's awesome. Thank you guys so much for doing that. I think that we all uh, that work in community hospitals can take a big sigh of relief because the last thing that we would want to do is try to coordinate, as you mentioned, a big interval of time between blood culture sets in order to try to increase the positivity rate. So that's a good news that they didn't find a statistically significant difference between those two. So Ginny and Wes, I really want to thank you all for joining us and presenting this study on episode 35 of the Dayson Digest. So thank you guys. Yeah, thank you for having us. It was really a great opportunity to, to be able to look at this article and discuss.
Yeah, thanks again. I do really feel like this article is going to be helpful for our community hospitals and applicable to them. And maybe at some point in the future, we'll get a larger prospective trial that can help us look at the potential benefits of really waiting between blood culture sets for some of those more difficult to grow organisms. So thanks again. I completely agree with you, Jenny. And just a reminder for the folks that are listening, the Dayson Digest podcast publishes new episodes every other Friday. And we are hoping that Jenny and Wes will join us again for the next episode, which will be episode 36 of the Digest in just a couple weeks. So until next time, take care. 